This is episode two of A Thought for Food, a special series within the Science and the City podcasts, brought to you by the Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science at the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, David Hoffman. Episode two, Tiny Amounts. I want you to imagine that you're a sailor in the British Navy in the middle of the 18th century. And you're on what would have been a fairly typical tour of duty. Two years at sea with hundreds of other men in a wooden sailing ship. And then those two years, you go all around the world. Africa, across the Atlantic, to the Caribbean and Brazil. Maybe even all the way to India. It's a tremendously dangerous profession. There are all the standard dangers of being at sea. Climbing up hundred foot masts to operate all the sails and ropes cranking enormous winches that could easily amputate your arm or your leg if you're not careful. And sometimes you're doing all this in ferocious storms. Also, though, this is a warship. And you're at war with all the other major powers of Europe. France, Spain, Prussia. And you could find yourself in a naval battle at any time, helping operate a huge, fiercely hot iron cannon that's loaded by hand with extremely volatile black powder and recoils with astonishing force with every shot, knowing that at any minute a cannonball from the opposing ship could come slamming through the hull in front of you, flinging ten-foot-long splinters as sharp as swords in every direction. For all of this, though, the greatest danger to your life, by far, is a disease called scurvy. Bloody patches on the skin and general lassitude, um, softening of the muscle so that the imprint of your fingers remained for, for minutes. Terrible constipation, so that um, the constipation had to be treated by surgery. This is Dr. Walter Gratzer, a professor emeritus at King's College in London, and author of a terrific book about the history of nutrition called Terrors of the Table, uh, describing the symptoms of scurvy. Then the teeth loosened, and the gums rotted, and it produced a hideous smell, and uh, in a fairly short time it caused death. And um, of course many more sailors died of scurvy than were ever killed in battle. In fact, a famous circumnavigation of the world by uh, Commodore Anson, he had 4,000 uh, sailors in his fleet, of whom 2,000 died, uh, four in battle, nearly all the rest of scurvy. Scurvy had been afflicting sailors and other people who were forced to live in confined conditions. Uh, soldiers, even orphanages, all the way back to the beginning of recorded history and even further. And all of the great medical minds had applied themselves to trying to find the cure, but all of them had come up short. Uh, in the Admiralty, it was believed that it was caused by the laziness or unhygienic habits of sailors, and some said uh, bad air in the living quarters and so on. And then somebody actually came up in the uh, actually quite late 19th century with the idea that it was caused by cockroaches and all sorts of weird ideas around. In the end, though, the answer came down to what the sailors and, and others were eating. Here's Dr. Gratzer again describing the typical daily diet of a British sailor of the 1700s. Yeah, it's disgusting. It, was, it mainly consisted of ship's biscuit. Just a biscuit made, made essentially of flour um, and, and some sort of oil, which got hard as iron and so had to be soaked in water, or um, the weevils got into it. And the only other uh, food that they got in any quantity was um, uh, salt pork. 
So I'll basically, we're, we're talking about hardened library paste and beef jerky. Nice. Yes. <laughs> as bad as our sailor's diet was, it's not much worse than what the average member of the working poor in, say, England was eating as late as the 19-teens. Oh, it was, it was terrible. What they lived on was bread and dumplings made of flour and water. And it was said that they didn't so much live as just not died. So there are a bunch of these diseases that, like scurvy, sound very distant and old-fashioned. Like something you'd read about in a pirate novel. Rickets. Beriberi, palagra, goiter. It turns out that these were all terrible and extremely common problems in Europe and America in the not-so-distant past. And all of them were caused by people eating extremely limited diets. Specifically, these diseases are caused by a deficiency of what scientists now call micronutrients, what we all know as vitamins and minerals. Here's someone I hope you remember from the first episode of this series, Dr. Michael McBurney, currently Director of Scientific Affairs for a nutritional products company called DSM. Vitamins and minerals, they're cofactors for, um, that help facilitate reactions. That, so either to make things, like to make some of these membranes or proteins, or when we're burning carbohydrates, sugars, glucose for energy, and we have to have them. If we don't, we end up having deficiency diseases. And I'm assuming they're called micronutrients because we don't need very much of them. I mean, let's see, how yes. much vitamin C do we need a day? 75 to 90 milligrams per day. Wow, that's a tiny amount. It's a tiny amount. Just to put that in perspective, a raisin weighs about one gram. And we're talking about 75 thousandths of a gram. And it's not getting that tiny amount of vitamin C that caused all those thousands and thousands of people throughout history, millions probably, to die of a horrible disease with a silly name, scurvy. And you know, it's such a, it turns out that it's such a simple disease to treat. I mean, you eat, oh, yeah. drink, eat an orange and you're fine, right? I mean, so. That's it, yes. It's amazing, really, for us living in an industrialized country in the 21st century to learn how common these deficiency diseases once were. One good example was found mostly in Asia. It turns out that thiamine, also known as vitamin B1, which can be found in foods as diverse as baking yeast and pork, is present naturally in brown rice, but removed when it's processed into white rice. So Japanese sailors, for instance, who were eating almost nothing but white rice, often developed a terrible disease called beriberi that would leave them unable to walk. Here are two more examples. Pellagra, which is caused by a deficiency of niacin, a.k.a. vitamin B3, and rickets, which is a deficiency of vitamin D. Um, pellagra, um, that was very prevalent in the U.S. in the early 1900s. There were about 10,000 people a year that died from pellagra. Before pellagra kills you, it gives you really horrific lesions all over your skin. If you want to have trouble sleeping tonight, do an image search on the internet. P-E-L-L-A-G-R-A. -L -L -A. But anyway, on to rickets. Well, rickets was, uh, meant that uh, the bones were soft, uh, they, that the calcium and the phosphate wasn't properly laid down. So uh, uh, children grew up deformed, I mean, they put weight on their bones, and uh, that's why their legs went bandy. 
it was a very prevalent disease, and it got worse during the um, Industrial Revolution when there was smog and very little sunlight and uh, crowded buildings and so on. I should explain here that vitamin D is unique. You can get it from food like other vitamins, but you can also manufacture it in your body. You get the raw materials by exposing your skin to sunlight. And this went well into the 20th century. Uh, And in fact, there was a big change in Britain when it was discovered that recruits for the army in the First World War, a huge proportion of them had rickets and uh, were stunted and deformed and had to be rejected. This problem was so profound that at one point, 60% of men volunteering to serve in the army were rejected because they had rickets. 60%! Vitamins were discovered because of these deficiency diseases. And this discovery required a sea change in the whole understanding of health and medicine. For centuries, doctors had subscribed to the ancient Greek idea that disease was caused by some malignant force disrupting one of the four humors, or basic bodily fluids. When this was finally overturned by the new theory of germs in the 19th century, the idea was still that you get sick because there was something entering your body that shouldn't be there. The whole idea that you could get a disease because there was something microscopic that you didn't ingest was revolutionary and took a long time to be understood and accepted. There there were lots of reports that citrus fruit did alleviate and also also prevent scurvy, but uh, it wasn't really believed because very often attempts to demonstrate it failed because the the fruit rotted and, and of course vitamin C is not that stable. The surgeon on Scott's first uh, Antarctic ex- expedition um, said that it was it was nonsense to suppose that uh, uh, anything anything nutritional could be responsible for scurvy. And he said that in 1911. No one used the term vitamin C until 1928, and they didn't correctly identify its chemical structure until 1932. There was some thought pellagra was infectious, and and so one of the researchers from the U.S. Public of Health spent a lot of time in the southern U.S. where it was especially predominant because people were eating a corn-based diet that was low in B vitamins, and he never got infected with it. And he thought, well, it can't be infectious because I've been working amongst all these people. But he wasn't eating what they were eating. But he wasn't, or maybe he was then, but he hadn't been all the time. It was a short right. period that he was with that community eating those things. So he wasn't suffering from deficiency. Because of gradually better research into deficiency diseases, vitamins were finally successfully isolated in the early 20th century, starting with just two which were named A and B. As they were isolating it, they were looking at things that were extracted using solvents. Lipids or fats, oils, and water separate. So some things were found in the lipid separation, and that was called sort of the fraction A, vitamin A. Mm -hmm. And then there was the other ones found in the water fraction, and that was vitamin B. Over the following decades, the list expanded. We have the four fat-soluble, vitamin A, D, E, and K. And then we have a whole collection of the water-soluble vitamins, the B vitamins, and there's a whole family of B vitamins, B1, B2, B3. Um, Within B, there's... There's niacin, there's thiamine, there's riboflavin, there's folic acid, and there's pyridoxin. And, of course, there's the other water-soluble vitamin, ascorbic acid, our old friend vitamin C. But 
other than the thing that keeps you from getting scurvy, what exactly is vitamin C? It's small, like glucose is. We need it for things like um, collagen synthesis, so making skin and making collagen. Vitamin C has a role of being an antioxidant. So a lot of these cofactors sort of um, facilitate a reaction, but they, they move in their transition in their state, and so they become oxidized, and so you need something to reduce them back so they can do it again. I almost understood that. And that's a term okay. that is just so, I mean, marketing blitz of the last okay. five years of antioxidant. Everything's yep. marked in an antioxidant. So just explain, can you explain that a little more slowly, what yep. an antioxidant is? Um, imagine that you have a train with a whole bunch of cars. Okay, and so you're wanting to build this train and you want to just keep adding a rail car one at a time to the end of this train. So you've got these rail cars coming in that are single, that are being pushed in, but you want to connect them to the long train that's, that's slowly being pulled out. So you have an enzyme or a facilitator that is, I'm going to call it an individual, that's the man or woman that actually couples that last car onto the end of the train. Okay. Let me just see if I understand this. We've eaten food, we've digested it, we're taking these so in our nutrients cell, yep. into the thing, and then you're talking about the facilitating agent that's taking the nutrients and building whatever it's building out of themselves or either using them tissues. for energy sometimes or building things okay mm -hmm. there often is there's something that has to be changed within that you have to take a hydrogen or an oxygen you have to transform and they do that and in doing that they get tired it, it, it exhausts them okay so they the train pulls forward, they're not able to couple the next one that comes in because they're too tired. Well, this is vitamin C is the person that's behind them that gives them that pat on the back or a drink or something says, great job, and that re-energizes them so for the next car they can put it together. So that's what an antioxidant does is that there is something in that 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 person that's connecting the cars together has expended or lost or taken on that needs to be relieved from them and an antioxidant like vitamin C does that. I, it, it's almost it's food for your food almost. Yeah. Not getting the vitamins and minerals you need is a great example of a larger problem called hidden hunger. To explain, here's someone else you might remember from episode one, Dr. Mandana Arabi. She's director of the Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science. So that you may have a food that's deficient in certain nutrients, but because you know your hunger was satisfied, it was a filling meal and it tasted good, you may not even notice it. And this is something that you know we are always concerned with because um, you know it's a kind of condition that people are not aware of, and you know you they probably are not also willing to change it once you try to introduce new interventions. Yeah, I mean, yes. if you eat fruits and vegetables, you're going to get plenty, plenty of all the vitamins you need, right? I mean, if you eat lots of fresh, well, fresh vegetables of, of all kinds, won't you uh, bases be covered, more or less? They will be, but the unfortunate reality is that most of us aren't. Um, so, you know, when we follow my plate, half our plate should be fruits and vegetables, and we have less than two servings of fruits and vegetables on average per American per day. 
Uh, so there's no way that our plate is a half filled with fruits and vegetables. So yes, ideally, and that's the way I would like us all to eat. That's the way I would always like to eat myself. But what if I don't? I think that what we have a responsibility is is to make sure that people are adequately nourished. That was the principle behind fortification when it was started in the late 40s. I mean, I'm thinking about people add a, vitamin A and D to milk is a big mm -hmm. one, right? And, mm -hmm. and iodine and salt. What, what are some of the... Folic acid in grains, um, because folic acid deficiency or inadequacy in intake leads... Um, to neural tube defects in children, and that usually happens within the first trimester of pregnancy when many women may not even know that they are pregnant. And so without adequate uh, folic acid in the diet, the neural tubes don't close properly. So a child is born with spinal bifida, so they have neural tube defects that, that their brain and, and spinal column didn't develop properly. Wow. So, and, and so it's something you, you don't know you're pursuing. You can't, I'm pregnant, I'm going to start taking folic acid now. Well, you can, but if you start it in right. when you realize, oh, it's a possibility that I'm pregnant. Let me go check because I thought I was just late. Well, at that point, it starts to be too late for the fetus. So you really need to be taking folic acid at conception and during the first part of pregnancy. And so as of 1997, all grains were fortified with folic acid, and we've seen a significant reduction in neural tube defects in this country and in others because of that. As far as we've come in our understanding of vitamins and minerals, and as much as our diets have improved since the sailors and factory workers we were talking about at the beginning of the episode, and as much good as programs like fortification have done over the past hundred years or so, we still may not have completely solved the micronutrient equation quite yet. And the reality is that 70% of Americans are vitamin D inadequate. Really? Because we don't spend time in the sunshine, we use sunscreen, and we often work indoors. I mean, I thought that, that um, vitamin D deficiency equates to, to rickets, right? And yes. Why isn't there an epidemic of rickets if there's an epidemic of vitamin well, D Well, because it's not vitamin D deficiency, it's inadequacy, okay? So you have a point that you fall below that and you end up having rickets. But if you're just above that, you still don't have adequate vitamin D for proper muscle strength, for proper bone formation, for proper immune function and a host of other things. And so you don't have rickets, although we do see rickets in this country and increasingly starting to see it. But people that are just above deficiency and could be considered adequate are really insufficient for good, really good bone strength and it also leads to muscle weaknesses. Now, it doesn't vitamin D occur naturally in things like eggs and milk? There's some in milk, but not much. The vitamin D that is in milk is there because of fortification policies. So there are some vitamin D-rich foods. They're mostly fish oils and fishy foods. They're not ones that are commonly eaten. The, the famous cod liver oil. Yes. And so this is one of the challenges in nutrition. And it's one of the questions in terms of how much should foods be fortified or how much dietary supplementation should people adapt. Um, and that's a debate. 
Which brings us to the somewhat controversial question of vitamin and mineral supplements. If you're not getting the micronutrients you need from your diet, is it effective to take them as pills? Now, in cases where people have severe deficiencies of a particular nutrient or another, particularly to the point of developing a deficiency disease, supplementation is necessary and life-saving. But for those of us who are eating something closer to a balanced diet, while it would be hard to find someone in the scientific and medical communities that would tell you that taking a multivitamin is a bad idea, there have been conflicting studies about how effective something like a daily over-the-counter multivitamin is as a replacement for nutrients we might be missing in our diet. Before we listen to Dr. McBurney's take on this question, I should be clear that the company he works for, DSM, is a leading manufacturer of isolated vitamins that are, among other things, bought by pharmaceutical companies to put in supplements. It's an area that people will debate, um, but from my perspective, a nutrient is a nutrient. It's the same chemical entity in your, once it's in your body and will be used. Um, the source of where it came, a cell or a tissue in your body cannot differentiate. And there is many studies now that show similar bioavailability, meaning if you take a, a vitamin in a food or in a dietary supplement, you have similar absorption and it has the same impact or effect in your body. Now, some of the debate stems from being an approved way of people wanting you to eat. Okay, should I be eating you know, all natural foods, organic? Should I be eating processed foods that might be fortified? Should I be using dietary supplements or not? And so ideally, nutrients should come from foods. I fully believe that. Um, but if people's behavior doesn't adapt um, for whatever reasons that they're not eating, affording, or choosing to eat, or always make the right choices to get those nutrients, I think it is more important that we help them find strategies to be successfully nourished than to be um, preaching to them on changing their behavior over the rest of their lifetime while they don't. Yeah, no. Especially with the micronutrients. That becomes a very complex world, and we've just now moved from four to 20 um, things that we're trying to solve an equation for on a daily basis. What does that mean? Well, you know, I was worried about whether my fat, if I looked at my diet today, did I have the right balance of carbohydrate, protein, fat, you know, and types of fat or something within it. That's like four things to look at. But if I now have to think about whether I had those things right, plus I had vitamin A, E, C, D, and everything else, it's kind of, and the amount of salt, I mean, it starts to get overwhelming, right? And I don't think I can think about it. So if I don't think about it, you know, I'd rather just eat and not worry about And I think that's some of what happens to people is because none of us like to feel stupid. We like to feel, you know, positive and in control. And what we should figure out is how do people get to the place that they have the nutrients that they need. You know, in that last conversation, there was mention of all the real boogeymen of nutrition. All the things that we might have learned are component parts of everything we eat, either healthy or unhealthy, but they still scare us when we see them on the label. Salt, fat, sugar. All of these things have been alternately exalted and demonized 
to the point where most of us really have no idea what they actually are and what their function really is in our diet. So join us over the next three episodes when we concentrate on each of these, one at a time, and see if we can replace the mythology with some real science. Special thanks to our experts in this episode, Dr. Walter Gratzer, Dr. Michael McBurney, and Dr. Mandana Arabi. This podcast has been a production of Science and the City and the Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science, non-for-profit programs of the New York Academy of Sciences. Visit them on the web at www.scienceandthecity.org and www.nyas.org slash nutrition. <laughs>